Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. It's a strange time. A time for deep reflection, a time for thinking about the things that really matter. It's also a time when we can see what works in our society and what falls apart the moment things go outside the realms of what we might ordinarily think of as normal. And at times like this, it pays to have access to some big picture, deep thinking. Capital B, capital P, capital D, capital T. Fortunately, sequestered away in Manchester and maintaining respectable social distance is such a big picture deep thinker. John Greenaway is better known online as the Lit Crit Guy. His whole thing is to go deep into the deepest of thinkers, come up for air, look around at society and culture, and paint the big picture for the rest of us. And it's not always a pretty picture. He's a horror fiction scholar, a media critic, a political theorist, and the old-school definition of a well-read, serious young man. To help us out with what it all means, here's John Greenaway. Enjoy the ride. John, thanks for joining us on the MTF podcast today. And it might be a little bit of a mystery why you're here, because music tech is not something that you're known for. Uh, you're a writer and a thinker uh, in areas of uh, literary domains. But I'm kind of really interested in getting to the bottom of how you think about the world and how what you think helps other people to think through the situations they're in. So let, let's start with how you describe to other people what you do. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, my name is John. I am uh, I'm a writer and a teacher from uh, from Manchester. So uh, what I what I do is sort of exist in between two disparate uh, institutions. So I, uh, I did a PhD in English literature and at the same time as doing that, I was starting to do kind of lots more public-facing uh, work, doing lots more digital pedagogy through through Twitter, um, mostly as a way of kind of surviving because the economic realities of the contemporary university system being what they are, um, it's not a great way of trying to make a living anymore. So um, what I, the, the, the reason that I started doing what I was doing was one, um, the kind of cultural criticism and... Um, what we might call capital T theory that I do is often very institutionalized and deeply inaccessible. Um, and the internet is a great space for uh, the distribution of knowledge. Um, and two, I started doing it because the kind of traditional career path of a, of a PhD into an academic job just doesn't exist. And there has to be another way of kind of making a living. Um, and the only tools to hand are digital distribution and, and technological tools and digital digital and social spaces in which you can put information and knowledge out and receive it back as well. Mm. So you became the lit crit guy on Twitter. And yes. how, how did that help? Um, <laughs> so I like one of the books that I always remember having is uh, the Norton Anthology of Literary Theory and Criticism, which is this big 1,600-page uh, behemoth um, that I bought in the second year of my undergraduate degree and, and loved it. And then when I started doing a master's degree, I was doing a lot more uh, work in that kind of area. And I just thought, you know, this this will maybe be interesting to talk about publicly. Um, and I thought maybe it would, it would find a, a kind of limited audience of other people. But then I realized that if something has been previously inaccessible to people, or even if they were not previously aware of it, it's a very kind of specialized subfield. Um, it becomes really, really engaging, and so it it turned into um, it turned into a kind of 
much bigger project than I originally uh, envisioned. Um, and I've been doing it for probably about five or six years now in a way that is, uh, I, I started more as a hobby and increasingly I've tried to take it a bit more seriously as time has gone on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's turned into a great way of, of networking, of kind of building, building a, a name and a, and a body of work outside of the restrictive institutions of higher education um, and trying to put um, social media to work in a productive and interesting and intellectually uh, stimulating way. Right. So a lot of people, when they hear literary criticism, what they think of is probably book reviews. Do you want to tell us what it what it kind of really is? Um, oh, wow. this is this will get me in trouble because uh, you ask you ask anyone who describes themselves as a literary critic what it is. You know, you ask a dozen people, you get fifteen different answers. So it is essentially about the the critical engagement with cultural products. And even that answer reflects my point of view on 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 the what literary theory and criticism is. So from my uh, point of view. I just finished writing a really long uh, piece on the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci, and Gramsci wrote a lot about culture. And he said that the point of any kind of uh, cultural exposure is not to give you more facts that you can pull out at a dinner party to impress somebody. Which is, in a way, you know, if, if we're being a bit cynical, that's what that's what book reviews are for, right? They're right. they're so you can impress the next people that you're having drinks with and tell them, well, did you know? Yeah, without um, actually having had to read it. Yeah, you yeah. don't need to read. Like in a way, book reviews actually limit your cultural engagement because you don't need to engage with it now because there is a professional book person who will do that for you. Mm-hmm. Gramsci said that the point of culture is actually to come to a fuller knowledge of who you are, your place in the world your connections with one another, with other people and your responsibilities towards a collective struggle for political liberation you know uh, he was a he was a member of the Italian communist party um, and was took took culture profoundly seriously and i think uh, even as it's become much more widely accessible i think it's still necessary to take culture extremely seriously and to tr- to treat it even even if we think of it as a form that is like disposable or uh, kind of cheap, you know, I think it's really, really important that culture is taken seriously. And I think if there is a good definition for what literary theory and criticism tries to do, it's to take culture in all of its plurality as seriously as possible as something with not just aesthetic uh, value or moral value, but also deep political value and significance. How important to you is the political element of what you do? Well, uh, deeply important to me. Um, I think... Uh, I, I describe myself as as a as a Marxist, but that's in terms of method. So Mar- Marxism is often dis- seen as a very prescriptive set of political positions, um, which is really a very uncharitable way of thinking about it, um, and something that obviously lots of Marxists have argued about for the last 150 years. As they do, as we do, as we do, we love a good argument. Um, so for me, it is it's a Marxism is principally a method, and the method is that before. Before, his, before kind of philosophy or anything spiritual or abstract or artistic, what you have is you have the struggle for material need. Um, and so that question, of, uh, that question of materialism is actually foundational to everything that we consider cultural. Culture, culture and politics are intimately bound up with one another by their very nature because you can't really have a culture until we have an economic system that provides enough of a surplus uh, that some people can sit around uh, talking on podcasts without having to be out kind of producing stuff that we need to survive. 
So in a way, it's a, it's a, cultural criticism is the ungrateful child of contemporary capitalism, because instead of being so grateful for the world that we live in, we turn around and go, actually, there's an awful lot about this, which is deeply uh, morally repugnant and deeply unfair. And we would never be able to make that uh, reversal unless capitalism had developed to a certain point and position. So, yeah, I think to talk about culture is to talk about politics. And it's especially the people who say culture is apolitical that are making the most kind of political gesture. Right, right. And uh, academia is kind of thought of as trying to be the critic and conscience of society. How well is it doing at that? Oh, uh, it, it isn't. It's completely abdicated that responsibility. I mean, uh, to, to make a few sweeping generalizations, um, I think on an individual and subjective level, there are certainly academics who are still trying to perform that function. The university, capital U, is now essentially a uh, it's a corporation. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't exist in educational institutions now. We we are corporate executives, if you've climbed a certain way up the ladder. Um, so what we've become, what the university has become, and to be honest, arguably this is what it always was, is a um, an ideological arm of capitalism that, dem- that denies its own ideological investments. Uh, again, Sorry, unpack, unpack that a little bit. Again, Gramsci wrote about this a huge amount where he said that the intellectuals, the kind of traditional sense of intellectuals, always say that they are non-political. They, but what they do is they provide legitimacy to the outstanding order and give it a kind of uh, narrative to tell about itself. Um, the context that I think of is uh, the Harvard Business School. Harvard is, you know, the great, uh, most famous university in the world. Com- scholarly it's it's there to to further our intellectual inquiry but it's also uh the same place that will give somebody like sean spicer donald trump's former press secretary visiting fellowship to make three hundred thousand dollars giving you know six lectures a year on their experience telling lies for a racist a xenophobe and a a semi-fascist so to, to say that they are deeply apolitical is them washing their hands, giving themselves an, a kind of veneer of intellectual respectability, whilst at the same time trying to uphold the political structures which they are supposed to be the critic and conscience of. Um, the most famous thing that Gramsci wrote about this is the difference between organic... Uh, the, his, the section in the prison notebooks on, uh, on the intellectual... Uh, in his time, the big the big uh, intellectual class was the was what he called the ecclesiastics, the the Catholic Church, which provides this legitimacy to a repressive state, whilst at the same time disavowing its own political involvement. And I think, in many ways, that's what the university does now. Arguably, you could say that the university, especially in the UK, has always done that. Certain universities, uh, the Red Bricks, were established as uh, training centres for a bureaucratic class that was supposed to administer a colonial empire. Um, so, in, in I, I think, but now, if anything, the, the 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 display of intellectual disinterestedness in in the petty affairs of politics is getting much harder to kind of maintain. I mean, academics are on strike just this week. Mm. They work for institutions that the institution I work for has cash on hand of three hundred and fifty million pounds. Um, the institution that's next door. Uh, is spending a billion pounds over the next 10 years on buildings uh, and corporate events to kind of generate revenue. And so when you start to see students as consumers, they are also products that you desperately have to compete for. So this kind of eventual corporatization of of the university is what has kind of uh, drawn out a lot of its radical potential. 
And so what's our response to that as, I guess, inverted commas, consumers of education products? Well, I think, firstly, uh, firstly to, 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 to think if education can be thought of as something other than a product is really important. If education is a product, then, you know, eventually the middle the the end point of a university for example is that you turn up you cut a, you cut them a check for 65,000 pounds and you get given a bit of paper that gives you access to a labor market that's what a degree is for right to get to get you the good job however if education is something other than a product which you can purchase but is in fact a kind of condition of what it means to kind of live a good life to engage with the fullness of knowledge and and become who you are supposed to be um, I think th- then you can't think of that in terms of economic exchange. And that's why I think actually uh, social media and digital spaces can be really interesting because there are elements, you can't necessarily commodify um, the relationship of giving away knowledge for free on the internet. Um, but what you can do is ask for the economic support that allows that giving away to continue. Right. So we'll come to that, the the idea of how you're kind of supporting the the being a public intellectual thing that you do. But before we get to that, is this an age of the public intellectual or is it? Well, I kind of hope so. I hope so. Because if anything, we have technological tools of greater sophistication than at any time in, in, in human history. And we have institutions which are uh, sclerotic and slow to adjust to change and desperately af- afraid of losing their own institutional privileges. So I think actually... It could well be, but on a, on a much more kind of localized scale, um, you will probably have like micro public intellectuals. So, but people who are known by maybe like six and a half thousand people who will visit a blog or will subscribe to a YouTube channel or listen to a podcast. Um, but whether, but but you won't necessarily have the kind of uh, public intellectuals that you used to have in you know the fifties to seventies, where you would have kind of public intellectual debate on mass media that would be watched by millions upon millions of people. Mm-hmm. I think there's the potential for this to be considered a kind of age of public intellectuals, but whether that comes about depends upon whether we think it's possible for you to to think and write and debate publicly in a way that doesn't slide into either kind of in-group validation or as we've seen actually in a lot of the internet into deeply reactionary politics. Mm. So what you've done is set it up so that there are lots of people who can give you small amounts of money so that what you do can be sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I've written quite a few things which basically they're they're the 21st century equivalent of pamphlets that old socialist organisations would would try and uh, kind of give away. And I think some of the best educational work in in Britain certainly has come out of things like um, the Working Men's Educational Association in the early 20th century, uh, socialist workers clubs in the 19th century, who believed that education was not just a product, but was an essential part of um, establishing the working class uh, f- for, th- for their point of view, so that the working class would be able to free itself. So what I'm interested in is, can you kind of have that same kind of pamphleteering spirit in order to give people knowledge, not to kind of give them additional facts, but to give them ways of understanding their own material and social conditions without that being inscribed upon them by an external authority. So it's about helping people come to realizations about themselves and about their own um, connections to the political and cultural spheres in which they exist, rather than being an external kind of 
capital A academic that emerges to go, well, here's how to make sense of your current situation. Right. What, what you do is you provide people uh, knowledge so they can make sense of the their situation to themselves. Right. And the kind of the received wisdom is that is, in inverted commas, unmediated communication. And I suspect that you're sort of very aware of the fact that the mediation and the relationship with technology mm. is something that uh, adds its own, I guess, problematic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do, do I know, do we know anybody, you know, for, I don't know, about 26,500 people I exist as, as a kind of small square on a, on a screen. Mm. Um, but in a way, all human relationships have a degree of mediation to them. You know, uh, Lacanian psychoanalysts would say that you actually require a degree of mediation because to be confronted with the real, the capital R, ontological truth of everything would be too traumatic. Mm -hmm. So we need that kind of mediating factor between us. Um, and in some ways, it can be a deeply alienating space. Richard Seymour's written a great book about this called The Twittering Machine, about the ways in which the social industries are... Um, uh, psychologically and, and politically damaging but I think the danger there is you kind of write off agency um, you write off the individual's capability of kind of engaging knowingly and critically uh, w with this this zone of communication even if it is mediated mm. while still being complicit in wh whatever the uh, context that uh, Twitter has arisen in yeah exactly so you, you can never step outside of the political consequences of it you know the, the kind of slogan that gets thrown around is there is no ethical consumption under capitalism and I'm like yeah that's true but that doesn't mean the attempt to act in a way that is consistent with your own sense of ethics is completely meaningless mm. you know all of us might be be hypocrites but that doesn't mean that we need to stop kind of trying caring, yeah. Yeah, or, or caring. <laughs> right 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 so your background is very firmly in the horror genre yeah. which is kind of interesting take on it particularly when you start thinking about the relationship between human beings and technology mm. do you want to sort of talk a little bit about that yeah yeah so um i did my phd at a place called the manchester center for gothic studies um uh, and i write quite a lot quite a lot of the way that i think about um politics gets inflected with horror um and i think horror is really that useful. sounds like an appropriate response to the political situation. Well, yeah, preci precisely. This is exactly what I think, which is that there's a great quote from uh, Theodore uh, Adorno who says that if you could write an ontology of the contemporary age, it would be an ontology of horror. Right? We exist in a world that is profoundly strange and, and deeply uh, uh, kind of catastrophic in some ways. Um, so we, we can either say that horror is this kind of trash cultural form that is there to kind of give us the cheap thrill of somebody in a clown mask jumping out at you, or, which I think is a much more interesting answer, is to say that horror is actually a diagnosis. It is a cultural response to a political and existential condition, which frequently is mediated through technology, especially probably like from the 80s onwards, you start to see much more explicitly digital technology um, interacting with uh, with human bodies you know changing us physically is what technology is able to do um, I mean you know uh, lots of existentialists have written about what technology can do and, and phenomenologists um, but their, their, their conception of technology is something like a hammer but right. now when you have technology which has got capabilities far beyond one person one use you can see that technology can change us in, in much more kind of frightening and profound ways. Which gets you into a very black mirror kind of situation. What do you make of that, incidentally? Uh, <laughs> so I saw, a swing, I saw a swing between two points of view, which is that I think it's... Uh, 
I think it's really interesting and responding to a lot of very uh, kind of contemporary concerns. But there's also the thing of like, well, Black Mirror is its critique is what if phones, but too much. <laughs> what if what if phones, but what if they were bad? Right. And uh, so I think it's a good first step. But I think there are more interesting questions that you can ask about the relationship between the human body, particularly, and horror. Uh, horror and technology and I think maybe the, maybe a, a kind of better starting place is Videodrome as uh, like the work of David Cronenberg and the body horror of the late 80s mm-hmm. where it's done explicitly from uh, a kind of awareness of stuff written by Marshall McLuhan and the way that technology is going to fundamentally not just change how we communicate but it's actually going to change who we are who we are yeah um, and the, the point is that uh, the thing that's interesting about Black Mirror is that the technology all works perfectly the problem is not technology. The problem is that this technology is turned back on ourselves. Right. There is a kind of uh, brokenness about the humans in Black Mirror, kind of on, on an ontological level. You know, it isn't that they've made bad choices. It's, it's just that after a certain point, if you push it far enough, human nature sort of snaps. Um, and so I think there's something there too. So those are two two really interesting strands of the way that horror and technology intersect. Is there anything that you can look out in the world and go, well, I'm really optimistic about that? Or are you, as, an, as a Marxist, allowed to be optimistic? <laughs> well, this is, that's really difficult. That's a really difficult question because there would be some Marxists who would say, you have to be. You can't admit the possibility of, de- of defeat. Right. Um, and there would be some who would say, actually, no, everything's, everything's awful. That's already happened. Yeah. 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 Um, which both, both, I think, are kind of perfectly arguable uh, positions. But there's a great... There's a great book called Hope Without Optimism um, by Terry Eagleton. So I'm not an optimist. Optimism is, is in his kind of formulation, very banal and kind of platitudinous. Everything will be fine. I mean, it might not be, <laughs> but I am hopeful. You know, there, there is like the, 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 the idea that the struggle for liberation is, is ended is, I think, profoundly narcissistic. Um, and it, it's very subjective. It's all about, you know, well, I don't feel great about this, how things have worked out for me. I think I, could, I think it's much better to be hopeful than it is to be optimistic because mm. hope admits the possibility that things may not work out, that things might not get better. Um, you know, to go back to Gramsci, it, the famous kind of formulation is pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. I, I think it's incredibly important to have a very clear-eyed and realistic view of just how bad certain things can be but never to obscure the fact that uh, not only is radical change uh, possible, it often emerges completely unexpectedly. Um, You know, uh, Gramsci went from, in the space of about 18 months, um, being on the brink of kind of leading a socialist revolution in Italy to being uh, kind of fighting a rearguard action against the fascist government that had taken over the state in the space of about, yeah, 18 to 24 months. That's how quickly, like, huge colossal events can change. So, um, I don't know. I think being an optimist is a little bit naive, but I think being hopeful actually is uh, is very difficult, but very important. Okay, so then the question is, what are you hopeful about? Um, well, what I'm hopeful about is uh, the idea that... Uh, well, one thing that I'm very hopeful about is um, there's a new book coming out by Wendy Liu called Silicon Valley Must Be Destroyed, How to Save Technology from Capitalism. Um because I think this idea of if there is a way forward uh, beyond a kind of decaying neoliberal order, which has been in crisis since 2008 and is arguably about to enter another one, 
Um, the, that way out is obviously technological. It's uh, but Silicon Valley has moved from the '90s slightly cyberpunk utopian idea of like we're going to save the world to how do I get venture capitalists to put 150 million dollars into this app which is going to fold within 18 months whilst I clear a check for 23 million quid and then retire to a commune somewhere. So I think if we can rethink our relationship to technology at a really kind of foundational level that moves us away from the just essentially that there's you know the meme that floats around online is that like every six months some startup company wants to disrupt public transportation and invents the bus um but there's but that obscures the fact that there's serious money and serious effort is put into these um attempts but what's missing is a political vision that sees beyond the cheap returns of capitalist logic so if there is a kind of potential, a utopian future for the world, which, you know, Oscar Wilde said, any any map without utopia on is not worth looking at, then it is going to be one that's, the genie can't go back in the bottle. Technology is a necessary uh, tool and instrument for whatever kind of future building might be done. But whether that can be done with the political understanding of technology that we have now, I think is quite uh, unlikely. Right. Assuming capitalism, assuming the technology that we have, mm-hmm. uh, but recognising problems in the world and coming up with, you know, tools to help address those, to, to, to address grand challenges. Mm-hmm. Is there a way in which that can be done well, that can be done ethically, that can be done uh, productively, that, that actually makes things, mass produces them, puts them out into the world in a way that actually makes the world a better place? Is that happening? Are there examples of that? I mean, I, 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 I hope so. I hope so. How do you get away from production that doesn't depend upon uh extraction you know and often that's extraction of of rare earth uh, minerals in the global south that's um you know plastic uh and toxic wastes that are dumped in uh china or the developing economies of of, uh, of india or other uh, other nations so i think is it possible to create something and i think that's why that's why i think education is really interesting because mm. what is what is education Um, because to me it isn't just the impartation of knowledge from one person to another but it is a co-constitutive act like learning is how you create something new but learning is never something that is just done to you it's something that you and you know one other as many others as possible can do together Mm. Um, so I think that that is maybe the creation of knowledge I think is something that can potentially not rest upon these extractive, violent logics of of, uh, of production. Should we make things better, or should we just stop making things? Oh, <laughs> um, I don't necessarily know if the choice is one or the other. Can we make better things that would mean that we need to make less? Quite arguably, um, is. I, that's, the, the question of degrowth is, is how it's referred to, this idea of can we do with less? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it has to be thought about. I, do, I don't know if I have a really good answer to that. I think probably, yes. Um, but can we, can we do that with technology that isn't designed to be obsolete in 24 months? Mm-hmm. Can we do that with technology that doesn't run out of tech support within five years, forcing you into making another purchase? Potentially, um, could we have a have technology that um, was uh, completely uh, ethically perfect? Almost certainly not, um, because that's not the world is always entangled with itself. You know, you can't. There is no unproblematic action, but there are definitely things that can be done that would be 
better. I think making better things and, and making fewer things probably have to go together. If I, let's say, am uh, from a completely different discipline or field from you, let's say I'm a computer programmer scientist or, or something like that, how can your knowledge be useful to me in what I do? I think one of the good things about any any kind of critical theory or what, what Marxists would call historical materialism is that it gives you a much bigger picture of how everything has developed to this point. Um, you know, Marxists, Marxists historically have always been incredibly interested in science. Um, you know, one of the, one of the uh, you know, Friedrich Engels wrote about anthropology, wrote about um, a great book called Dialectics of Nature, which is about um, the natural world. So I think people worry that, oh, this is politicizing science or this would politicize, but it's like, this is already political. Um, and if anything, one of the great values of it is to allow you to see the connections between what we take to be impartial knowledge and the political effects that that impartial knowledge can often have. I mean, anthropology was created by pseudoscientists in the 19th century who needed a way to uh, uh, form a racist hierarchy of for their colonial project. That was seen as science. That was seen as completely... Well, we can't argue with that. That's just the way that the world works. But this isn't that is not how the world works and i think it's much more um valuable to be able to see the uh ways in which knowledge is constructed and often instrumentalized to ends that scientists and engineers and mathematicians would probably be personally repelled by than it is to worry oh well we can't talk about uh you know history we can't talk about the social applications of this because that's dangerously close to doing politics because if we don't talk about politics or we don't kind of are, are not aware of that then i promise you there are plenty of people with much more reactionary and conservative views who very much are aware of that you know this is why there are so many um often student movements who are deeply opposed to um technologies of facial identification being used on university campuses why? Because it's going to be a very easy and efficient way of criminalizing dissent, of uh, turning universities into into observational panopticons even more than they already are, and a way of of, of policing and restricting uh, young people. Now, is that what the technology is supposed to do? No, of course not. That's not what technology is supposed to be for, but that is what it will be used for. And I think, uh, especially around issues of facial identification and around, um, that's that's an area where I think technologists uh, have to be blindingly aware of the fact that this is a kind of tool for any sort of repression of, of social movements, for example. Is this just about thinking about ethics before you get started, or is there a sort of a bigger picture to it than that? I mean, yeah, you could, you could say that it's just, well, you know, we already, we take the ethics class, we've solved the problem, but... Um, this this is this is not a static process this is like cultural criticism we're, ne we're never going to be done with examining the ramifications of, of discursive processes um you know i think marx generally gets sort of stereotyped as a very static thinker you go oh well marxists all think x or you know there's the marxist formulation which is x but if you read capital what you actually see this is what David Harvey talks about, is that Marx is maybe the great thinker of systems and systems which are never still. You know, uh, the dialectic doesn't stop. Um, the the uh, system of capitalism is not a, is not um, 
uh, a, a diagram. It's something that is constantly in motion. So he's he is the great theater, theoretician of flow, of uh, processes, of production, which is not something that ever stops. So I think if you go, well, we, we, we had an ethics meeting and now we're done. Um, that in itself is a problem because we go, well, our ethics is going to be completely non-problematic for the entire life of this product or this this thing that we're developing. But I think having a self-reflective and dialectical attitude towards the relationship between production, application and ethical or moral or aesthetic considerations is what uh, any kind of critic or critical approach will give you. Mm. Uh, from a policy perspective and politically speaking, it feels like Europe is doing a kind of a, at least putting more effort in in this regard. Things like GDPR yeah. and 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 those sorts of things. It, it, will it help? Um, I mean, I hope so. If only, if only from the point of view of um, the threats that GDPR regulations carry within them. Um, because I mean, if anything, as a as a policy instrument goes, it's relatively crude. I think, but what what. Uh, any large organisation will will be nervous about will be the be the threat to the bottom line, and I think you have to understand how to make any sort of corporate entity behave in the way that you want it to. Is you you this idea of um, this happens quite a lot with video games. You know, video game fans will say, "Oh, why why won't developers be 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 brave and stop making their programmers work eighty hour crunch weeks?" So, oh, you want them to be brave. Well, you already pre-ordered. You, you're asking them to act ethically when they already have your money. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, um, I think the GDPR regulations are a really interesting, a really good idea, actually. And I think the interesting one of the right to be forgotten is is one that I'm sort of fascinated with because we have this, you know, we're told that everything lasts forever on the internet. You know, everything's permanent now. And I actually think there's something slightly horrifying about that. Um, there's something slightly unnerving about this idea that you will always be the very worst thing that you've ever done. Um, you'll always be... There's a joke that floats around Twitter, which is like, uh, every day Twitter has a main character, and the aim of going on Twitter is always to make sure that that's not you. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, but like, sure. But the, the kind of awful nightmare of forever being that one moment mm. stretch it's like being in hell yeah this, <laughs> this um, right to be forgotten thing is really interesting when looked at from the point of view of somebody who's interested in heritage and mm. archives because what people tend to find particularly with um, for instance uh, with archaeology you tend to dig up the stuff that people threw away you don't yeah. dig up the people that, the things that people prized and and so if things that are important to you that are so important to you that you delete them mm-hmm. uh, that get forgotten what you know sort of future archaeologists mm. of culture will only find you know basically the stuff that we thought was trash i mean yeah but the i mean i think the internet is an incredibly haunted place right we, we you know this idea that there are so many like half finished blogs there are so many websites which no longer work there are so many like places that used to be really interesting forums or sites of discussion or cultural exchange or yeah. weird experimental arts that are now kind of ghost towns and and are haunted by these kind of floating avatars and this idea that what we will be left with is kind of the cultural detritus of a of a of an age that was like exponentially accelerating mm. um but that's that's something that i think is really interesting uh, there's this idea which i've been fascinated with of kind of, of a kind of gothic marxism which is that 
the, in what we throw away, in our cultural detritus, in our low culture, there is something that tells us a great deal about not only what we value, but about what we were hoping for for our future. What did we want the What did we want the future to look like? Right. Um, and in the kind of ghost town of the internet, maybe you can see. It's sort, of, it's sort of like digital archaeology in many ways, right? You see the layers building up on top of one another of what we thought. The internet was where we would create the future. Um, and we you get to see what certain, each generation, and this is maybe a generation that changes in the space of a year, right? The web of, of 2020 is a, is, a, is a slightly different beast from the web of 2016. Yeah. Um, in many ways, a worse place. But you get to see what did these what did each generation think about what the future was going to be. And yet at the same time, we've lost GeoCities, we've lost MySpace. Mm-hmm. And there's an absolute repository yeah. of, of the culture at the time. Yeah. is just, well, there's no point paying for the hosting. Let's shut it all then, down. Yeah, let's shut it all down. Yeah. So, so in, in that respect, you know, the sort of the, the right to be forgotten is the curse of being forgotten. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But but also a necessary one, right? What 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 defines us as as kind of subjects is the is our contingency. This is why we're drawn to horror because we need to be reminded of our contingency. But it's also why we're scared. It's why we're frightened because. To, to be confronted with finitude is to be confronted by a limit and the limit experience you know uh, it's it's what back in like the 15th century would be considered a religious experience almost you know you're taken to the limits of yourself and reminded of your own finiteness right but we're promised a kind of immortality the singularity yeah you know that but at the end of the day it, just what you said there you know if the costs get too great and you can't monetize the user base effectively mm turn off the servers everybody dies you know there's something you know if you lose everything what would that make you if you exist solely online if you have a particular kind of persona or, or output if you lose that there, there is something kind of terrifying about it yeah. um, but also it's something that is true of, of life itself right we, you know we, we live towards our own end um, Simon Critchley has this great uh, point where he says that like our basic ontological condition is in, is indebtedness. We need one another from a very kind of foundational level, um, but we don't like to be reminded of our own limitations. We don't like to be reminded of our own kind of fragility, of our finitude, of our um, inability to do this by ourselves. So, but it's the only way we're going to make it through is doing it together. Not wanting to sort of push on the big questions, but what's the role of art and and that cultural creativity in, in all of this? Well, I think to explore those kind of questions, right? Is it just, I think one of the, one of the kind of really sad things about a lot of contemporary culture is that it gets talked about solely as product and people go, oh, well, you just don't like it when films are successful. And it's like, yes, but if the only, one of the Marcus, you know, Marx writes about this in the Communist Manifesto where he says that capitalism has dissolved Everything, everything is dissolved. Any kind of religious belief, gone. Any kind of uh, moral or aesthetic standard, gone. Everything, all it's come down to, the only way that we can judge value is through the value of the marketplace, the value of exchange. So if the only way that we can understand art is through its box office returns, that explains how we get things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, where we go, well, these must be good movies. Why? Well, because they made an awful lot of money. No, but because they're the new mythology. Uh, yeah, even more chillingly, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, this kind of, but, but is it possible? Is it, I think it's, I think it's necessary actually to defend the idea of talking about uh, culture as a realm that is 
well, may, maybe no longer independent, but in, is in some way resistant to being only talked about, only understandable within the terms of how much money does this make? Um, because, you know, there are, so, there, are, there are millions of people who will make and create not for any expectation of reward. Reward, I'm sure, would be really nice uh, because it would probably allow them to create more. But the, the, the urge to create itself is, is uh, not something that fits neatly within uh, use value and exchange value. Right, right. The need to express yourself could just be as easily uh, carried out through screaming in an empty room. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, you want you can't feed your children with that. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Right. You know, we're we're drawn into like any any kind of cultural act. You know, there the the argument is about what do we what do we value, and eventually, if if the logic of the market is the only logic, if it's that, if that truly is the only way in which. You know, we will have the only, that'll be the only metric of quality will be, will this sell? Then what you'll see is, you'll, and I think you're starting to see it, is a colossal narrowing of cultural space. Um, this idea of culture as a place that, you know, uh, doesn't requ requires no risk, must be easily distributable, must be easily comprehensible, must be easily marketable. If that's the only, what, what that will exclude is vast swathes of of literature and philosophy of art of cinema of all of these cultural forms they will just become irrelevant why because they won't sell right um, there's this great Mark Fisher quote where he's talking about this in the context of philosophy and he says that uh, he was teaching in a further education school and they were talking about Nietzsche and one of them says well Nietzsche's Nietzsche's difficult Nietzsche's hard he's like yes but he says, you know, you want Nietzsche in the same way as you want a hamburger. But the very indigestibility of Nietzsche is the point. <laughs> the point is that there are certain kind of cultural forms that don't, that are hard, that are difficult, that are weird and, and maybe not marketable. But that is not a problem with the cultural form in and of itself. It's a problem with how we understand value. And if we only, if we only admit for the value of the sale then there will be so much culture that is completely indigestible to us. Right. I want to try out something, and hopefully you're going to be able to carry this over the finishing line for me so that I can uh, actually kind of put this to bed a little bit. I, the way that I think about Music Tech Fest and a lot, we do a lot of things that are about experimentation and putting different people from different disciplines together, trying things out. And th there's... Uh, the, the, the story that I kind of tell myself is start with Northrop Fry. Uh, yep. He's a Canadian literary critic. He had this idea of the, the I guess what you call the hierarchy of literary forms. Mm -hmm. Start with myth, uh, gods and monsters, uh, go to uh, the romantic, you know, the sort of uh, swords and sorcery and, and dragons and so forth. Uh, it goes down to uh, high mimetic, mm -hmm. meaning like life but for rich people, uh, to low mimetic, you get Oliver Twist and, uh, and, and those sorts of things. And then you get down to the world of Kafka and uh, satire and irony and those sorts of things. And he says, what happens when you come out the bottom of that? You go through the history mm. of, of literary forms, you fall out the bottom and you're in free fall. And he said, what he thinks is that you come back up at the top, you're in myth again. But from the point of view in the way that uh, William Blake did, you know, Songs of Innocence and Experience, you go through that journey as an innocent, then you come back out and you can start to tell those stories again from the beginning, from the point of view of somebody who's seen Kafka, who understands and that whole journey. Now, 
jump over to Marshall McLuhan and you've got these ages of media. You've got the oral age where we sat around campfires and tell each other stories. You've got the uh, scribal where we're starting to write things down pen and paper, print, electric, now into digital. And the question again is what happens when you come out the bottom of that? What's after digital? And, and my theory is you end up outside of that, being able to look at all of it and going, what can I use? What's useful from all of those different mm. ways and all those different media of, of uh, expressing yourself. You put that in a room and go, we've got all of these forms and all of these ways of thinking to play with. What can we now make and what's important to make? And, and I guess kind of the question I'm, I'm asking you is, what do you do with that? Once you've kind of thought about it in that way, where do you take it and how do you apply it? Yeah, I think I think what it means is that we end up being kind of technologically and culturally, you know, ravens. We're drawn to we're drawn to the new. We're drawn to kind of what's shiny, this but also is, literate. You, in, in, well, in many ways, no. I think like. Capitalism itself is profoundly illiterate. Capitalism doesn't need you to read. Capitalism just needs you to be good at understanding pictures and doing what you're told. This is something uh, Deleuze and Guattari wrote about in um, something called the Postscripts on the Society of Control. Like you don't, it's in a way, it's post-lexic. You know, you don't need the written word. What you need is, um, you need the screen. Uh, of course, that is in itself kind of text, right? But it's a text that is both, in some senses, both more sophisticated and less sophisticated than the written word. Mm -hmm. But what I think, what I think, you get the opportunity to do by going through all of those stages is you get the a chance to kind of forge a new literacy, right? That draws from multiple uh, modes of storytelling. That draws from, you know, I think new myths, yes, but you'll also return to, to old ones. It's why. You see online, especially a kind of resurgence of uh, hyper traditional Catholicism. Why? Because it gives you a myth by which you understand everything. Um, it's why uh, you have a kind of, um, but also you have things like, like you say. You know, what's the contemporary mythology? It's it's uh, it's the superhero. In a way, I think the superhero is increasingly exhausted. So if anything, you can't, we're kind of in need of a new one. Um, and there are moments in uh, you know, uh, I think social movements are probably where do you find a new kind of collective? Where do you kind of find a new mythic grounding mm. is going to have to be in, in uh, a, the people. Uh, but then I would say that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think what you end up with is you end up with an incredibly hybridized, there won't be any kind of pure cultural form anymore. You know, th this is certainly true for me. You know, I, I do podcasts, I do, I do writing, I do talks, I do teaching. So there is no there is no kind of one traditional intellectual role. There won't be one traditional uh, media role. Um, and there certainly won't be one traditional way of storytelling. I think if anything, uh, in the wake of kind of the post postmodern age of the 60s, up, up to the present really, there was this, uh, you had the period of high modernism, um, of abstract and difficult language, the high mimeticism. Then you had the low mimeticism of, of Kafka, arguably Lovecraft as well. Um, and then you had the kind of postmodern free play. In a literary sense, we've kind of returned to a, a kind of rewarmed 19th century literary realism, which was never real. Realism is not realistic. Um, but in, in I think cinema is, off, is often doing some of the most interesting things. Um, this is why I'm drawn, drawn to horror film, because I think horror is... Uh, and a very apt description. It's not realistic, but it is real. Um, and I think that's an important thing to, to kind of point out. 
So you end up with a... And this is why horror works so well in the contemporary condition, right? Horror is the ultimate hybrid. Uh, it will get into everything. It will get into the, the way that you think about technology. It will get into the podcasts you listen to. It'll be on your Netflix screen. It's in your phone. It's on the cinema screen. Uh, it's in the books that you might read. There, are, Horror is everywhere because we exist in a horrifying world. Horror is about hybridity. It's about multiplicity. It's about um, the polymorphous nature of fear and desire. Um, so I think... Yeah, maybe maybe there's some real truth to to Adorno's point that contemporary ontology is determined by horror. That sounds like a really dark place to leave it, but it seems like the right place to leave it. <laughs> is there is there any light that you can shine on this dark place? Well, I think horror horror is um, something that we all go through, but it's something that is um, horror films have survivors. You know, for something to to to, to be a horror film, um, we the reason that a lot of people who've been through very traumatic th- incidents in their own life find horror a kind of uh, a rewarding thing to watch is because it reminds you that monsters can be beaten. You know, maybe not all of us make it, you know, maybe not all of us survive the, 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 the mass man with the chainsaw, but monsters can be beaten. Vampires can be thrown back into their coffins. We should know that they're going to come back, but we should also know that we've dealt with them before. So I think horror is it, horror is not necessarily just a dark place, but it requires a sort of uh, cold-eyed willingness to look at the world as it truly is. And yeah, when you do that, you get to see just how terrible things have been. But you also get to see that uh, that kind of struggle against the monstrous has been happening for, for centuries, for, for the entire length of human history. And to me, that is both kind of frightening and, and awe-inspiring, um, but also deeply kind of uh, positive and affirming that the, the you know the fight goes on. I'm one of these people who needs to know that it's going to be all right in the end. Uh, can you can you assure that? <laughs> no, no, because uh, because the, the 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 but the point is it could be, it could be. I'll take it. Will will it be ultimately? Don't know. That's up in the air to be de- to to be determined. But uh, it could well be, and yeah. especially if more people try and make it that way, I guess. Absolutely. Fantastic. John, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. That's the Lit Crit Guy, a.k.a. John Greenaway. And that's the MTF Podcast. You can find more of John's thinking on Twitter at the Lit Crit Guy. You can dive deeper at his Patreon page for as little as a dollar a month. That's patreon.com slash thelitcritguy. Or, and I'm sure John would endorse this, you could go to your local library, choose a few actual books, and start on your own critical journey. He's always there when you need some signposts along the way. I'm Andrew Dubber. You can find me at Dubber on Twitter. And Music Tech Fest, of course, is Music Tech Fest on absolutely everything. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, you name it. I hope you enjoyed today's intellectual diversion. If you find yourself with some time on your hands during your home stay, feel free to go back and check out some of the back catalogue. This is episode 70 of the podcast. There's bound to be something else in there that's of interest. Of course, in the meantime, subscribe, share, rate, review, and wash your hands afterwards. Make sure you stay safe, have a great week, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Cheers.